I want to start today by turning with me, if you will, to Hosea. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, don't sweat it. No big deal. When I was in Bible school, I had a wisecracker for a teacher. Somebody said, did you bring your Bible? And he said, I am a Bible. So you are living epistles. At least in my view, you are. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Hosea is one of the most remarkable writings of the prophets which speak of the Son of God. The whole gospel is rooted, as you know, in the writings of the prophets, as Romans 1, 2 says, and as Romans brackets that idea in Romans 16, 25 and 26. And there's a couple of things I want you to see today. This, was, this thing has hit me so hard this week that I usually spend a lot of time in the morning in my cave, re-editing, editing, thinking, praying, going over things to bring to you. But today, this thing was like untouchable. It was the opposite. I was staying away from it. So if I fall over, it's because I did 38 minutes of exercise, intense exercise before I got here today to stay away from this because it's like take off your shoes. This place you're standing is holy ground. And I'm simply calling today's message in the same place, in the same place. And please also be ready in Romans chapter 9. I've been teaching Romans now. This is the 96th, 92nd hour in Romans, 92 hours in Romans, which isn't much compared to what we did for Revelation. But I'm not going to dawdle around in Romans too much more. There are a lot of things that we could go into in much greater depth and will after, after studying Romans the epistle. But I'm going to be hitting the pedal to the metal pretty soon, even on starting on Wednesday, to wrap up the study of Romans. We don't want to dawdle on it because there's points that need to be made, and they need to be made with acceleration. And so we may be done with Romans before you imagine. Romans chapter 9 also. Again, the message today... Simply called in the same place. And thank you today for choosing the only needful thing. You all know what that means. Jesus said to, at a family that he frequently visited in Bethany, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus. He said, Mary has chosen the one thing that's needful. And you didn't have to look far to see what she had chosen. She was seated, seating herself at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ to hear his word. And so it's my prayer that God will grant us insight. As Brian's prayer said, we see, but we don't see as we ought to see. And so I want this message to be laid a hold of by you. So that you can hold forth this word of life 
in this generation and be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you, the confidence that lies in you. Hosea chapter, I'm going to actually read from the Bible this time, even though I've memorized the whole thing in the Hebrew. Just joking. Hosea 1.10, the second half of the verse, 110b we'll call it. The whole verse is quoted in Romans. We'll get to that some other time. But the second half, where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Now please notice where it is said to them. You are not my people. It will be said to them in the same place. Where it was said to him, said to them, Israel, you are not my people. It will be said to them, meaning in the same place. You are the sons of the living God. This makes me think of Galatians 3, and I want to be a little freewheeling with this and go where the Spirit brings verses to my memory. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes to a largely Gentile audience, you are all the sons of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You are all, use that famous Pauline word, pantes, you are all the sons of God. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That to a Gentile audience, this to a Jewish audience. He also quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. This is emphatic because it's repeated. Hosea 2.23. He personifies Israel, of course, as he always does, as his bride. He said, and I will sow her. For myself in the land, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Romans chapter 9, where this is quoted, he quotes 2.23 first, then 1.10. Paul's point in teaching Romans 9 through 11 is that all Israel will be saved in the context of a universal salvation. The identity of Israel is the subject of Romans chapters 9 through 11. And we have to kind of embrace this whole three-chapter segment all at once. Otherwise, great misunderstandings arise, such as Paul saying in Romans 10, I wish to be cursed so that Israel will be saved, as if they're not going to be saved. When the whole point of Romans climaxes in Romans 11.26, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved in the context of a universal salvation. 
The identity of Israel is the subject of Romans 9 through 11, and Paul says it, in fact, right in Romans 9, 6b. Now, Wednesday, we'll get into more of the mechanics of this whole thing exegetically, verse by verse. But in 9, 6b, for not all who are of Israel are Israel. For not, who, not all who are of Israel are Israel. Paul is not saying, and this is important that we unravel this thing, as some people assume and some commentators assume, he's not saying that only those who believe are Israel, but that Israel is Israel, God's people, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and not by heredity, not by descendants, or genetic descent from Abraham, or by compliance with the law, or even by seeking God. For as Yahweh says, the Lord says through his prophet Isaiah in Romans 10.20, and you'll notice I'll be hitting a lot of different places in this three-chapter segment. In Romans 10.20, Paul cites Isaiah 65.1, and he says that Isaiah is very bold. To me, boldness is found at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one interpretive rule for me when I interpret the Scriptures. There's one interpretive rule for me, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the one rule of thumb by which all the scriptures are to be interpreted. So when we're talking about a place where God says you're not my people and at the same place says you are my people, we're talking about the place called the crucified Christ. And whenever you deal with the cross of Christ, with Christ crucified, you're dealing with a single event that includes his resurrection from the dead, where he was handed over, says Romans 4.25, for our sins and raised up for our justification. The hour there, O-U-R, is all of humankind. Whereas 1 John 4, 9, and 10 says, God's love was demonstrated in this, that he sent his only begotten son to be the expiation for our sins that we may live through him. We may live through him. Who's we? 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ is the expiation for our sins. He's the righteous one. And he died not for our sins only, but for the sins of of the whole world. And in John, 1 John 4.14, he is called the same only eternally begotten Son of God is called the Savior of the world, as he's called in John 4.42. The Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world. We could reverse both of, the, both of those things and they'd still mean the same thing. He is the Savior of Israel and the Messiah of the whole world. 
For God sent his son not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. That mission has not failed. The word has not failed. In fact, Paul says that in Romans 9. It is not as if the word of God has failed. So Paul is not saying here, as some assume, that only those who believe are Israel. He's rather saying that Israel is Israel by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not by heredity or descent or by compliance with the law or even by seeking God. For as Isaiah is very bold to say, I'm going to be very bold to say this right off at the beginning. I'll be very bold to say this. How about that parable of the sheep and goats, which we're only beginning to touch upon in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. What if I was bold enough to say to you that that's Jesus' parabolic way of preaching universal salvation? What if I were to say to you, as I've already suggested, that the Son of Man coming in his glory and seating, being seated on his throne to separate the sheep from the goats is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The place is the cross. In the same place that he said to Israel, you are not my people, a people controlled by sin, by the law that's hijacked by sin, he said, you are the sons of the living God. He wasn't dividing humanity up into sheep and goats. He was saying to all of humanity, you're not goats, you're sheep. The throne that he's seated upon isn't some futuristic throne. It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for some great salvific act in the future when it's already happened in the past. It's done. What's left is for it to be revealed to the doubters and revealed to all humanity in all of its times at the resurrection of the dead. So in Romans 10.20, Isaiah is very bold, Paul goes on to say, I was found by those who were not seeking me. So how can you say that God's people are people who were seeking him? Romans 3.10 and to 12 says there are none that seek after God. So I was found, he says, by those who were not seeking me. It seems in Romans 10.1 where Paul says, Brothers and sisters, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. It seems, seems that he's insecure about the salvation of Israel in Romans 10.1. Brothers and sisters, he says, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. Let me ask you, you that believe that all things will be restored and have been in the cross of Christ, you that have this vision of a glorious, eternal, universal salvation, which is what all the prophets have said since there were ever prophets, that God's spoken through the mouth of all his prophets without exception from the very beginning about an apo 
katastasios panton, a universal salvation, a restoration of all things. In other words, a restoration that's as deep and wide as the creation itself. You who have this vision, you who have received this reconciliation, as Romans 5.11 calls it, you who know it, you who understand it through faith, have you ever in the quiet moments of reflection wished that people you love who are attached to the doctrine of eternal hell for half of humanity would understand what you understand? You're actually asking, you're wishing that they would be saved from that damnable doctrine. That's what Paul felt like. I wish that my wish for Israel, my intense wish for my kinsmen after the flesh, he actually meant in some parts of this, my family. My countrymen too, my fellow Jews. Their salvation. It regards their salvation. That doesn't mean that Paul was insecure that they would, wouldn't be saved. Because certainly that insecurity is certainly relieved by Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel will be saved, he said. He has no problem with that. He knows that. His whole message has to do with the universal salvation that's connected to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more meaningful the cross and Jesus Christ and him crucified is to you, the more sensible a universal salvation is. The more ridiculous the doctrine of annihilation or the doctrine of eternal damnation for half or more of humankind. There's no room in the Bible for such a notion as an immortal post-mortem suffering for any human being. Inasmuch as you believe this, my heart goes out to you because you believe that because you don't understand Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, this is not Paul saying that only a certain number of Jews will be saved. Not Paul saying it. Meaning those who are really Israel by believing. He's not saying those who are really Israel by believing will be saved. Because Romans 11.32 concludes that God has consigned all human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike, to unbelief. Disobedience, which is actually non-belief. So that he could have mercy upon all of them. In 1 Peter 2.10, Peter also looks back to Hosea. And he said, once you had not received compassion or mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then what does he say? Once you were not a people at all. You weren't a cohesive people. 
But now you are the people of God, the sons of the living God. Why? Through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Not through your personal faith. Romans 11.32 really is the climactic verse of Romans in one regard. It concludes that God has consigned all of humanity in unbelief and disobedience in order to have mercy on all. So in the same place, he's saying, none of you are my people by, by your personal faith, but you're all my people by the faithfulness of my Messiah. He said it in the same place. I'm going to illustrate it in a minute. Paul is showing that the line runs through us all, that there's a sheep and a goat in every single one of us. People who suffered great persecution in Eastern Europe being interviewed would tell you and have said, yes, we were under great tyranny and oppression, but we, under that oppression, betrayed our loved ones in order to get food, in order to survive. We lied. We betrayed them. We turned them in to save ourselves. That's because there's an oppressor in all of us, a perpetrator in all of us, and a victim. There's a sheep and a goat in all of us. God separated the sheep from the goats by separating the goat in you from the sheep in you, and he rejected your identity as defined by sin and by this evil age, and he also accepted your identity as a new creation in Christ Jesus. He did that for all of humanity. So Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 46, I'm just touching it a couple times so far, just touching it. Someday I'll do the whole thing. Parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus predicted universal salvation there through his death on the cross. Say, I don't see it. Well, I do. And I'll tell you why. My only rule for interpretation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Therefore, the throne that he says that he comes to with all of his angels accompanying him is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but that's not a glorious throne. It isn't then why does Paul say we don't glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? There's the throne. And it was dark on that throne. You didn't see what was going on. You're seeing it now through the word, through the Holy Spirit. Someone would say, well, I don't determine to know everything in the scripture by that vantage point of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Therefore, I see Jesus dividing humanity up into the sheep and the goats. Thank God I and my family are sheep. And my neighbors down there that, that play loud rock music all night are the goats, and they're going to hell forever and ever, and I can't wait. But what about the interpreter that sees everything as Jesus Christ and him crucified? Then the glorious throne has to be the cross. You say, But he said he will come with all of his angels. Yeah, he did come with all of his angels. None of them helped him. Remember Matthew 26, 53. Don't you think I could call on my father and he would give me 12 legions of angels? 72,000 militaristic 
fighting angels. They could protect me. One of those angels could flick the whole crowd that called for his crucifixion into the next dimension. 72,000 of them. I could, I could call them. Why? Because they're there. First Timothy 3.16 says he was beheld and contemplated by angels. Angels were there. But he didn't call on them because God needed no help in securing your eternal redemption. The angels couldn't help. They stood by and watched. He was seen by angels. Who was? God made flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16. He was made flesh. He was justified by the Spirit, by resurrection from the dead. Seen of angels, taken up into glory, believed on in the world. Why does it say taken up in glory and then believed on in the world? Because it doesn't make sense if he was taken up in glory and sits at the right hand of the Father in glory right now and then believed on in the world or preached among the Gentiles. He's talking about taken up in glory means taken up on the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.8, if the princes of this world, the leaders of this cosmos, this evil age, had ever known what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Because if they had known what they were doing, they were actually placing the Lord on his throne of glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus predicts, with all the angels of God, all the angels with him, Then he will divide the sheep from the goats, meaning that in his death he will put off and away from himself forever the identity of Israel under sin, which would be the goats. And at the same time and in the same place, he's establishing all Israel as his sheep. In other words, in the same place where it was said, you're not my people to all of Israel, It was said, you are my people. In the same place where God said, you, Israel under sin, calling for my crucifixion, I don't recognize you as Israel. In the same place, Calvary's cross, he's saying, you are the sons of the living God through this act that I'm performing right now on your behalf. Through my faithfulness. So in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, in the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus predicted universal salvation through his death on the cross. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, accompanied by all the angels, and sits on his glorious throne, that's how he kicks it in, in Matthew 25, 31. That's been fulfilled in A.D. 30. A.D. 70 kind of recapitulated the idea in the destruction of Jerusalem. God was saying, this is what I mean. You, Jerusalem, under the law, whose mission goes around and makes children of Gehenna, this is not Israel. And a new Jerusalem reveals what Israel really is. The Son of Man has come with all his angels. He has come with all his angels. The whole point is none of them helped him. They weren't supposed to. The problem came by a man in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20. So the solution came by the man, Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all 
1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. All the angels were with him at the cross. And he could have said, hey, take care of these people calling for my crucifixion, will you? 72,000 of you, go ahead, wipe them out. No. When you have lifted me up, then you'll know that I am he. Who? The son of man in his glory. You'll know that I am he. Not when you see me on a glorious blended throne in the heavens. When you see me nailed to a Roman cross between heaven and earth. With a crown of thorns piercing my brow. And with a face beaten beyond human recognition. Because that's what I'm doing for you. I'm experiencing the wages of sin, which is the harvest of where sin would have taken you. Look at me. This is where sin would have taken you. But I'm taking the wages. So the Son of Man has come with all his angels. None of them help. But all of them only watched him achieve the salvation for all of Israel and for all of humankind and for all of creation. For this Son of Man is he who was seen by Daniel in Daniel seven thirteen to 14, who was escorted by angels into the presence of the enthroned Ancient of Days. He meets the Ancient of Days at a throne, which means the Father also suffered this death. The father didn't die. Jesus died. But the father suffered the death of his son. The triune God in their passionate philanthropy for mankind endured the steamroller of the wages that sin pays out for us. So Paul is not arguing for the salvation of a so-called spiritual Israel and the damnation of an Israel after the flesh. Rather, he's arguing for the entire salvation of all of Israel through the negation of Israel, not my people, and through the affirmation of Israel as my people. The same group of people, he says, not my people and the sons of the living God. That's because Paul says in the verse before Romans 9, 5, and 6, he says, to them belongs the adoption. Huiothesia, that means the placement as sons of God. To them belongs the name sons of God. God has not nullified that. The gifts and the calling of God are without recall. Romans eleven twenty nine says that. So what about Jews now? What about, what about Jews now? What about all the population, half the population or more of America who doesn't believe this gospel? What about them? Well, well <laughs> if people believe, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. If people don't believe, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. Let God be true, though every person's an unbeliever and a liar. Romans 3, 3 and 4. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. 
What do you think salvation is? An act of God, pure and simple, or an act of God in which you cooperated somehow? You weren't even there. Angels didn't even cooperate. Who do you think you are? Let's bring the doctrine of hell into it. Who the hell do you think you are? (laughs) So, the negation of Israel under the flesh or Israel under sin and the affirmation of Israel in grace both happened in the same place and the place was the crucified Messiah so look at Romans 9.25 just remember the glorious throne of the cross where all the angels accompanied Jesus but none helped him it says he was seen by angels doesn't say he was helped by him that's the whole point they, they didn't have, angelic intervention has nothing to do with eternal salvation. Human, if, if angels didn't help him achieve your salvation, what makes you think you can help him achieve your salvation? Even by believing. And so, from the same glorious throne of the cross, where all the angels accompanied Jesus, but none helped him, he achieved the salvation of the world, including all of Israel. All of Israel is saved in the context of a universal, creation-wide salvation. All creation in all of its times, all humanity in all of its times. What would be the use of preaching good news if that weren't true? Who would God be? So in Romans 9.25, citing Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10, Yahweh in the same place calls the same entire people, not my people, and not loved. Not my people and not loved. He calls them loved, greatly loved. And in the same place where they were told, not my people, he calls them the sons of the living God. It's not like half of you are the sons of the living God and half of you are not my people. No, all of you are not my people as controlled by sin and as controlled by the law that's hijacked by sin. All of you. I refuse to call my people as being warped and distorted and crippled by sin. But I call all of you at the same time my sons and daughters, the sons and daughters of the living God through the faithfulness of my son, Jesus Christ. This line runs through us all. That's why we put off the old self. Because that's not the one God recognizes. 
I never knew you that one. I never knew you doesn't mean, oh, you're going to hell. No, I never knew you as under the control and the enslavement and the collusion with sin. I don't know you. That's not the person I know. I know you as created in Christ Jesus. A new creation. So the place is the cross, the glorious throne of the Son of Man, where he separated the sheep from the goats by negating Israel as identified with enslavement to and collusion with sin, and by affirming the same Israel, all of them, as identified with the righteous act of God and the faithfulness of Jesus, their Messiah, who is also the Savior of the world. John 4.42, John 3.17, 1 John 4.14, Titus 2.13, the grace of God has appeared, 2.11 make that, the grace of God has appeared, colon, salvation for all. Salvation for all. You want to preach grace? If you're not preaching salvation for For all, you're not preaching grace. Call your church Grace Church if you want to, but you're a hypocrite. We preach grace around here. Really? Do you preach salvation for all? Of course not. Then you aren't a grace preacher. You better just face that fact. I had to face it. Because I was just like a lot of the guys I went to Bible school with. We prided ourselves. We're the grace men. The grace men are failing, but we're the grace men. We weren't the grace men. Romans 9.25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people. In other words, what's he saying here? I'm going to call not my people, my people. And not loved, beloved. Hosea 2.23 is what he hits first. And in the very place, here it is, in the very place where they were told. I'm always thinking, I'm reading that verse, I go, what's that place? Is it a valley somewhere? Is it a mountain somewhere? Is it, is it the valley of Megiddo? Is it Armageddon? Where does he say this? When did he say, not my people, and at the same time say... My people, in the crucified Messiah, at the cross of Christ, that's where he said it. Both are good news. That person, if that was all you were, would go to hell, but you ain't that person. That's good news. I don't know that person. So we wonder when we're angry and hateful and bitter and resentful and judgmental and critical and unbelieving. When we're slanderous and maligning and gossiping and complaining and comparing one another with one another and scapegoating political figures or other people. We wonder why we don't feel the fellowship of God because he doesn't love that guy that you are right there. He's not with that person. Put him off! And put on the new man who's renewed in Christ Jesus. 
It's the same me, though, isn't it? No. God doesn't recognize that bitter, complaining SOB. He recognizes a new creation in Christ Jesus. Put off the old man and put on the new man. So look at it again, verse 26. In the very place where they were told, you are not my people. There, in the same place it means. There, they were, will be called the sons of the living God. Hosea says it in the future. They will be called, so we assume he's going to say it in the future. But what was future to Hosea was present at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hosea prophesied that God would say in the same place, not my people and my people, and that place was the cross. For us, that's already happened. God has already said, no, you're not my people, to all of humanity in Adam under sin. And he has said at the same time, you are the sons of the living God to all human beings. And that's why he says little things, little snippets from the scripture, like if one died for all, then all died. And in Christ, all will be made alive. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And by his single obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, all of humankind in all of its times will be given justifying life. There's no room for hell in the Bible. There is no room for such a damnable doctrine. Damn hell. You ever say that? You're really mad. You go, damn hell. I'm saying it now and I'm not even mad. Damn hell. You know what hell is? What Jesus Christ endured for all humankind. It's called the wages of sin. It's a death that you can't even conceive of. It's a death that's incomprehensible. It's a death that's so incomprehensible that the lights were turned off over Calvary when he died that death. And it wasn't God penalizing Jesus for your sins. It was God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together enduring the consequences of enslavement to sin and your and my complicity with it in acts that we committed willfully or without will involved, omission or commission, the effects of all that was endured by the triune God in their passionate, philanthropic, great love for you and me and their abundant mercy, mercy that will be shown to all of humankind that already has been shown at the cross, but will only be revealed when every eye sees him even those who pierced him, when every knee genuflects, when every eye sees him, every knee will automatically genuflect in adoration and every tongue will automatically acknowledge that he's the Lord. What other Lord would you want but the one who redeemed you, reconciled you, loved you that way? There are many who are called lords today. Many celebrities that are called Lord. Many are called God, small g. But we know there's only one God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no room for the guy or the gal that God doesn't recognize. Let's consider it one more time in closing. Romans 9.26, again, citing Hosea 1.10. Romans 9.26. And it will be in the place. Here's what the Greek text says. This is what I read in my study. En, in, to, the article to, which, which would basically be the to us. Topo, T-O-P, omega O. That's an Omicron, that's an O. This is what I see. This is what insight comes from looking at that Greek text right there. En to topo. Accent there. Topo. We get topography. What's topography? It's a map and it shows the elevation or the declines or inclines of mountain ranges or valleys. To know the height and the depth of the love of Christ by this topographical map. En to tapo, in the place, in the place where they were told, you are not my people. Then he says this, eke, e-k-e-i, says the Greek, eke. There in that place, it means. There in that place. In this place, God said, not my people. To all of humanity in Adam. Under sin. In the same place, eke, in that same place, God said, all my people. I love you. You're my people. You're the sons of the living God. Same place. So Jesus Christ, I lo- next time somebody says, what about the parable of the sheep and goats? Say, oh, you mean that parable where Jesus preached universal salvation in the cross of Christ? What? The shock they show is the distance they are from Calvary's cross. The level of the shock they show when you say that will be Revealing the distance they are from the cross. And I'm not saying that to condemn. I'm just saying, look, my worst moments in this life are when I'm distant from the cross. The cross of Christ where Christ was crucified and then buried and raised is the only safe place I got in this world. Wow. (laughs) I just leaned on that. The Omega. That's Omega. That's Omega. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Think he's trying to get something across here? What's the last word? Finished. To Telestai. I'm not done with this. I'm pressing toward another thing, but it won't be today. And it will be in that place, Entotapo, where they were told. Where they were told, you are not my people. Who told them that? Yahweh. Where was he? Crucified. There. 
In that place, the same place, they will be called sons of the living God. And that's why Romans 9.4, if you back up there, the word huiothesia is used. To them belongs the adoption as of sons of the living God. God hasn't changed his mind about that. He just had to bring it about through the crucifixion of Messiah. I'll just close by hitting you with a couple other things. How about Galatians 3.26? You are all sons of God through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Why is this true of all Gentiles as well as all Jews? Because God loved us and gave his son to be the expiation, the putting away, the abolition of our sins, the sins of the world, that we may live because of him. So we are sons of the living God living stones in his temple. The rule of thumb is the rule of thumb everywhere. Thumbs up. Not my people, thumbs down. My people. Who are they? Two different peoples, one, same, all humanity. Not my people under sin, my people in new creation. If any person's in Christ... He's a new creation. Christ died for all, then all died in Christ. Therefore, all are in Christ. Therefore, all are a new creation. That's what makes sense. That's what's important. That's what's serious. I should close by quoting Lou Harper, who was a detective played by, I don't know where this is coming from, played by, Paul Newman. Paul Newman. (laughs) Somebody laid out this big thing about somebody, you know, somebody did this and somebody did this and somebody grabbed somebody in 1862. And Lou Harper's answer was, not important. So what does Galatians 5, 6 say? Circumcision and uncircumcision. Not important. What is important then? A faith working by love. That's the spiritual Christian life. Galatians 6.15. Circumcision and uncircumcision. Jew or Gentile. Not important. Paul said. Paul the new man. Get it? See where I went there? Spontaneously. See? What is serious is a new creation. And peace and mercy is on all those who walk according to this rule, which is a faith that works by love. And they are the Israel of God in the present scene, in the present juncture of the ages. So what about Israel now? Not believing, still unbelieving. What did Paul say in Romans 11, 11? So I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not, he says, answering his own question. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. 
Verse 12, but if their misstep is bringing riches to the world and their defeat riches for the Gentiles, that's their defeat at AD 70, if their defeat for the, is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring to the whole world? Romans 15, for you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? If they're not my people, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean when they realize that God has called them all my people? Well, it'll be life from the dead, Paul said. So I've come to a few conclusions about this. And I'm not going to hit you with them today. But all Israel will be saved because all Israel is saved in Jesus Christ. I don't see Jesus Christ. I hear about him a lot because everybody uses his name in curse or surprise or disgust. And Hollywood's almost under a contract to have it said in every single movie. I hear about him all the time. And people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ are curious about why he's mentioned so many times in a curse in Western language, in Western movies. They're actually curious about it. Who is he? And guess who answers him? God answers him and shows him who he is. You don't see Jesus Christ, but neither do you see all of humankind saved in him either, do you? But both are realities. Both are realities. Both are realities, and faith is the gift of God that lays hold of that reality and understands the totality of God's love. Why does God give us faith after he saves us? So that faith can discern the totality of God's love. God gave me a gift of faith. He said, have a deep and abiding faith on January 23rd, 1972. I'm just realizing now, 47 years later, why he gave me the gift of faith. So that by it, I could discern, understand, and communicate just what is the totality of his love for all of humankind. I get it now. Not fully. That's why I was made. That's why I was created. That's why I'm on earth still for some strange reason, still here. All Israel will be saved because all Israel is saved in Jesus Christ. All Israel is saved in the context of the salvation of all of humankind and in the context of the restoration of all things which God spoke of through the mouth of his prophets from time immemorial. Why do preachers in the United States of America and in Europe and in Asia and in Africa, why do preachers in Ar- even in Antarctica who preach to the penguins? Don't worry, you'll have a winning season this year, they say. And Australia. Why do preachers argue with what God spoke through the mouth of all of his prophets from the very beginning of time about a restoration of all things. Why do preachers argue with that and divide humankind up into the saved and the damned? Because they're not with all of God's prophets. They are not in agreement with the mouth of God that speaks through his true spokesman. That's why. So... 
if God spoke through the mouth of his prophets from time immemorial, and that this will be recognized by all of humanity and all of creation when Jesus, God's son, who happens to be currently retained in heaven in Acts 3:19 to 20, when he makes his universal appearance to every physical eye, and when he brings the times of refreshment that will come from the presence of the Lord, everybody's going to realize, everyone that ever lived is going to realize what you already should know. And by now, you should be teachers of it to others. Thank you, Father. We thank you for this insight. And I cannot finish today without thanking you. And I simply say thank you. You've granted us this insight. You've granted us this hope You've shown us a picture of your abundant mercy, which is universal, and of your great love, which is unrestricted. May we truly lay hold of this, because as Scripture teaches, we have already received the reconciliation. We have already obtained it. We know it. And may we be able to speak it with people without coercing them, without demanding their attention, without requiring them to listen. But when the opportunity arises, may we gently say it in conversation. And may we answer when someone says, how do you get this hope? Where did you get that? May we be able to answer. In some cases, with chapter and verse. But in every case, by the Holy Spirit of grace.